Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm here with my colleague Shanu and Virginia Trioli to talk about her new old book, Generation F. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Virginia. Oh, thank you both for having me. It's lovely to be here. And that's a nice description, new old book. I think <laughs> that works well. <laughs> yes. We're used to having people in for the new books, but and this is does have substantially new sections to it. But can mm. you tell us a bit about how um, this particular version of the book came came about? Well, in 1996, I wrote Generation F, which was my response to Helen Garner's first stone, and also a uh, an argument, if you like, a, a passionate argument in support of a generation of feminists I knew who were not some uh, priggish, punitive, punishing bunch of women who had no sense of humour and who couldn't handle the real world, but on the contrary, were actually out there making significant law reform and changes and and huge advancements for not only women of their generation but others as well. And with the arrival of Me Too and the advent of that huge international social movement, I had all these people on social media contacting me going, I've reread your book or I had that book in the back shelf and I pulled it out again or I found your book in a secondhand bookshop. You need to update that and get that out again because it's just incredible how prescient it is. And I hadn't read it in quite a while either. And they were telling me there's stuff in there that it's, it's as if it happened yesterday. And I pulled it out and I reread it and I thought, it really is actually. And actually what's amazing about, and this is not to blow my own trumpet, but what's amazing about the central story that I focus on and that Helen Garner focused on as well, which is an incident at the residential college at the University of Melbourne Ormond College in 1992, which we can go into, that that incident... That was the vanguard of Me Too. That mm. was our first big public Me Too moment in Australia. And the young women who made complaints about their then master of Ormond College in 1992 were treated like pariahs. And they were run out of Melbourne on a rail. And it was really important to get that story out again to show what's changed and what hasn't changed. Yeah. And it is frightening, I think, to read. It's to read how little has changed in, really? in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And that might be partially a mark of how appreciant the book actually is, is that it felt like it was. It feels very fresh. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is worth talking a bit about the, the Ormond College um, issue because it's the sort of core of the book. It's, it's, it's the, uh, the, the linchpin. It's what sparked mm. um, the discussions at the time and what sparked Helen Garner's interest when she wrote her celebrated and best-selling book, The First Stone. And then what uh, sparked my response too. So in 1992, this matter broke in the newspaper. No one knew about it until it got to court. And two women had gone to the police and had made complaints about the then master of Ormond College, Alan Gregory. And they had said that he, they, they said that he had um, indecently assaulted them at an event, um, a college gathering, there at Ormond College at the University of Melbourne in Parkville. The police investigated, they laid two charges of indecent assault against him and the matter went to court. But what had led up to this was that whatever the, the women say had happened at Ormond College, they immediately went to the Ormond College administration and said, hey, this happened to us. And that's where it all went off the rails. And any person listening to this who has thought about complaining about harassment or who has complained about harassment will get a sinking feeling right now thinking, I know how this is going to go. Because institutions are just hopeless 
at dealing with mm. these sort of complaints. And it started to go off the rails then. Uh, there was a really opaque and messy complaints process. It wasn't clear to the women. They were interrogated by someone who seemed like she was there actually to disprove and disbelieve them. Then that went through to a closed door process, but it went on and on and dragged on, was not dealt with quickly. Then the women were ultimately told, look, you know, we don't disbelieve you, but we're standing behind the Master of Ormond College and nothing was done. Oh, and we're going to you know, change some procedures here as well. And um, as I understand it, the barrister who represented them in court told me they found out by a notice that was stuck on the notice board as they headed into the dining room one night at Ormond College for dinner. That's how they find, found out how the resolution had been reached of their complaints. We're standing by the, the master. They were clearly incensed by this. And this is where the problems start. When these matters aren't dealt with well and early and effectively, it can really blow up. So they went to the police. But of course, as we all know, the police do their own investigation. They don't necessarily lay a charge just because you want them to, but they did. Um, the matter went to court. The first uh, charge was thrown out. The second one was found proven, but was then overturned on appeal. And that was where the matter ended. The women were never identified. You can't identify a victim of sexual assault. Uh, they never identified themselves. They have turned down every single entreaty to be interviewed and to interview themselves. And they have just disappeared off into the ether after this matter that just galvanised and appalled and divided Melbourne society and then sparked Helen Garner's interest. <laughs> I think um, I, I feel like there's so many different network networking paths that go, that different ways point. we can go here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe we should talk about the first stone. Mm. Um, that is ultimately what you were responding to, mm. in, and I think it's a really it's a really interesting. We were talking about it during the signing, and I think I think it's a fascinating sort of. So, what what was your initial response when you read it? When I read Helen Garner's first stone, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that a woman who was uh, I loved and admired and still do, huge fan of her work. I, I grew up with her work. I went to Melbourne University as well and uh, a dear, uh, moved in, you know, her footsteps, if you like, and, and her paths. You can't live a Carlton Parkville <laughs> life and not do that. Uh, I had a really good friend, uh, Kate Candle, who swore to me that the loft that she was living in in Parkville was Jarvo's old heroin <laughs> hangout. And she said, one day I found a needle there as well. <laughs> we're like, you know, look, whatever. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But it was just our life was in, lives were imbued with the, um, the law and the literature of Helen Garner. So when I read that this woman who was an idol of mine, who was a feminist through and through, she's always described herself that way, could not understand why these women went to the, as she said, the cops, not the police, went to the cops. Why would you go to the cops for something like that? I felt so betrayed and so let down and so did so many other women I knew. And it sparked this huge debate and argument. It's hard to understand now at a time when, and we were talking about this earlier, at a time when we don't actually have one meeting place anymore for our debates mm. and discussions, you know, a couple of pages of a couple of broadsheet newspapers anymore. It's hard to understand that everyone was... Everyone was involved in this. Everyone took a side, whatever that side was, and could either understand absolutely why the women went to the cops. That's why feminists insisted and advocated for laws for, uh, against sexual harassment and laws that made judges understand what sexual assault really was and indecent assault really was. And those who said, 
They just didn't get it. What is wrong with these women? How dare they bring a man down in this way? It was just minor, just deal with it. And I I poured over every single word of her book and it's, it's you know, as Helen Garner's books are beautifully written, but I still believe so flawed in that argument and mm. so flawed in refusing to understand why at some point a woman usually you know the vanguard the leaders the ones who are prepared to take the first bullets stick their heads above the parapet and say you know what this stuff goes on everywhere and all the time and we have we have dealt with more harassment than we even remember that's a, a refrain in the updated book we forget we uh, we forget more than we remember mm. you know we've forgotten more harassment than we can even recall and for someone to actually stand up and say and to turn their face and their lives to the scrutiny, the pitiless scrutiny of the courts and of cross-examination and of some of the best barristers in the business and to have their reputations either stand or fall on that, I thought was extraordinarily brave. Mm. It definitely comes across that way now. And as I was saying earlier, I don't think Helen's book has aged well in its argument. Um, but I, I'm curious uh, about how much of her argument you, do you think is informed by her re reaction to the cops? You know, you, you say in the book, it's as, almost as if she said pigs instead of cops. I do. I, I write that line and it was interesting. As a writer, you have those moments where the, the words just appear on the page and you're unaware of writing them. You know, so, something happens between brain and fingers and you go, oh, yeah, that's that's true. Mm. You know, it's like you're two people, you know. Yeah, Virginia, good line. Virginia, you wrote that. It was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but... It was I, a good line. It really stood out to me. <laughs> but I wasn't aware of writing it. Yeah. And that there was something about that. And the line is, I and I still wonder if in a first version an earlier manuscript somewhere if the line wasn't they went to the pigs mm -hmm. because I have many people many dear friends of exactly her generation one of my closest friends who died a number of years ago was an old friend of Helen's and I know their attitude towards the police mm -hmm. and they are not the kind of people writers lawyers advocates who would do what my friends did and what I documented in Generation F, which was make friends with the police, go to the police and talk to them, hold seminars with the police, try and uh, have law reform sessions with them, talking about and advocating for an understanding of these kind of offences of indecent assault, sexual assault, harassment, in a way that's never been done before. They, they would not do that because... They're the, the generation of, of protest and dissent and very big physical and vicious clashes with the police. Mm. And they nurse resentments and anger over those years, which I well understand. Um, my husband is the same. He's of that generation and he, he went to uh, the, the, the protests against the Springboks yep. and um, against South African apartheid. And, you know, he was beaten up and shoved in divvy vans. And, you know, he, he bears those emotional scars too. So I get that. But I think you're right. I wonder if how much of that actually is that block and going, yeah, 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 okay, you could do this, you could do this, you could whack the hand away, you could complain to something, mm. but you don't go to the cops. And that's a key generational difference, I think. Do you, do you think, though, that where we you know, went through that and then we had the reaction to that of where we're using trying to use the law and you, as you're talking about the generation of women you're talking about there, but that maybe in those in these last couple of years it feels like we've kind of sort of fallen backwards even a little bit with that relationship because all we sort of see at the moment in 
in the news media is all these terrible stories about relationships now kind of between, you know, with the younger generation, particularly with those teenagers that are going to, um, you know, going to festivals and things and strip searches on the rise and all this kind of thing that we kind of went a little bit and then we kind of sort of reverting back to like maybe this newer, younger generation coming up is going to be a bit more like the older generation of that first wave yeah, of I, I 70s feminists. I think that's a really good point and I actually think you're right. And, and, I, and I, can, I, I can almost sort of see the, um, the, the graph line, you know, coming up to that point of protest and then, you know, falling back a bit with mine and then coming up again. I talked about this on air just the other day that this younger generation seems a, a lot more, you know, radical and protest-oriented uh, than say in the last you know 15 to 20 years which I think is a really good thing and you know I, I make the point in in the book and others do too that seriously if you're not angry and protesting at university then you know <laughs> when are you going to <laughs> what are you doing you know <laughs> there is a time and a place for that um, although it's interesting to see how many older people are at you know extinction rebellion and uh, and that's right anti-mining process well, as well you've got the two you've got that original generation who mm. are sort of more of the grandparents now yes. great grandparents yeah. and then you've got the generation, still believers the yep. generation that were actually trying to work within the system yep. that have gone well we might have we kind of maybe have given up now because they've had 20 years of trying yeah. to work in the system and seeing that the system hasn't progressed as far as they would have expected and so now they're also just gone well you know what protest might be the only the only voice that we have because people are just not listening anymore possibly so yeah. I think there's there's something interesting in that along the way though you've had some really interesting moments as well haven't you I mean you know one very reluctantly and tragically brought about and that's someone like Rosie Batty who's been pushed into the public mind and consciousness yeah. because of the dreadful you know murder of her son by her estranged husband and her son's father who you know very reluctantly took on that role but you've had individuals who have come along who have in by using their own personal story I think have shifted the needle a bit as well mm. uh, and the, the the writing and the research that's gone around that some you know best-selling books that have gone some way towards that. Uh, Jess Hill, See What You Made Me Do, I think is a uh, phenomenal and lasting contribution amazing to that book. amazing book, to that literature on the reality of um, mostly women, but uh, a family, but women's lived experience of violence. Uh, and I think those truth tellers have been have made a difference along the way. But I think all of them are nonetheless, and the protesters too, are standing on a bedrock of law reform that was only possible because this generation of women decided to take a very pragmatic, very calm, very reasonable and flexible approach, swallow what they really want to say, swallow their anger, go home and sort of, you know, kick the couch instead of, you know, screaming and yelling and tried really hard to get stuff done. And they did mm. in really great ways. And that law reform, I think, has provided the bedrock on which everyone now gets to either uh, activate and protest or, as we're seeing in Me Too, take the the incredibly bold and brave and risky step of standing up, identifying themselves, going to their going to their employer and saying, he's been doing this to me, or going to the police and saying, he raped me. And we're seeing how that's playing out. And mm. it's not all playing out in the favour of the complainants, is no. it? No, no, I mean... Not at all. And that's, no. that's what the, I think, kind of the saddest part of, of reading your book was, mm. is that so many parts of the book... I was reading and I was like, if you just substitute someone's name here or exactly. the year that you've mentioned, 
this could just be now. Sounds like a story that just happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really important thing that I was trying to get to then. And yes, still applies now. The whole idea that all of this, that, um, that feminism, uh, that uh, making complaints about sexual harassment or uh, sexual assault has gone too far. Oh, my goodness, you know, men's lives and careers are just being ruined and sacrificed for this rash of complaints that are being made. The, the, move, the Me Too movement's gone too far. You've heard that a lot, I'm sure, that, you know, mm. and yes. overcorrection is too... The death of romance in the workplace. The death of romance in the workplace. Worst article I've read this week. romance. <laughs> I don't know what you're I'd love someone to go out and do a study. I reckon romance in the workplace is still alive and well. Oh, but yes. if you're pushing your luck with someone who doesn't want to be romantic with you, well, that's the oldest story in the book. What? Just take no for an answer yeah, yeah. Uh, ask him out yeah. ask her out that's absolutely fine but when they say no thank you that's it yes, yes. it's and not complicated and if you said i don't like to be touched please don't hug me just don't hug them yeah. just don't hug them and one of the things I, well, a takeaway from the book if we can mm. um get a takeaway it's very small takeaway but it, it seems deceptively simple i think is your idea that in most cases all people want is an apology and acknowledgement and to promise not to do it again. That's all they want. And That's all that any of them want. Even even, even in some of the most egregious circumstances, and I'm thinking here of, of Harvey Weinstein and others, the majority of those women would have been happy with an apology, an acknowledgement it happened, and a promise it wouldn't happen again if it didn't. Because they just wanted to get on with their lives. They wanted to make the film with Harvey. It was a great producer he was a, everything he touched turned to gold he worked with great people it was a wonderful project it was a terrific script that's what they wanted no one ever really wants to bring someone down there there might be a couple and in the book um, a, a few of the lawyers I speak to say look I'm, I'm aware of a, a handful just a handful of contested complaints or complaints that you know didn't stack up or that might have been um, trivial or not bound in fact but the rest of them certainly were, and all they wanted was exactly that. It seems a simple thing, you know. There can be, there are situations that that rise to the level of harassment that are not super intentional, mm. and it doesn't seem that hard no. for men to just acknowledge what but, they're doing. But that's the other point that you make, particularly in the afterward as well, is that you know the legal system is built in a way that there is no sort of no-fault apology. That's right. <laughs> you know, the way we have a no-fault divorce, there isn't that way where you can acknowledge you've done something wrong, yeah. uh, say that you'll, you'll change, and as long as you do change, that is it. It's, it's kind of like once you've opened the door, then, then it, it can go anywhere. And yeah, Kate Jenkins, who's the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, says um, it, the, the options are nuclear. It's either, it's either nothing, no response, they don't do anything, or it's nuclear. And the whole thing blows sky high. And that, I guess, in, in the, the rewrite that I do, and I, I bracket it by what's happened since and what hasn't happened since in a new forward and afterward, the challenge that I'd like to lay down to those who are working in this field now and the next step is to then try and refine what we have and the way that we use harassment, uh, the policies in the workplace or legislation and our response to them, and to find the next way of getting through it. And what's really interesting to me, the, the repeated thing that comes up is bravery. It's just being brave. My, the 1996 book, The Original Generation F, opens with a story, with a little anecdote of me in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And it's the perfect example of a bloke really stuffing up, really getting it wrong, and then really getting it right. And he did it off his own bat, in his own way, 
No one had to tell him to. He figured it out and it was perfect. Mm. Perfect. He and I worked together at the Age newspaper for years afterwards. And frankly, I, I, I forgot. He forgot too because he just did it so well. And it was just a moment of shared humanity where he must have just got home, said to someone, oh, God, this happened. And they went, oh, you idiot. You know, just ring her up and apologise, will you? Just say you're sorry. Mm. And that's all he did. And it was just a moment of just being human. So rather than going to that defensive place of, you know, no, I'm not, no, why should I? And, oh, God, it'll get me into trouble. Well, okay, it might, but you've still got to be brave. And you've mm. got to, you know, take the risk that this might open me up to something. But I'll trust that maybe she can be human too, mm. right? I mean, I needed to be human there as well and not go, well, that's all very well, but I'm still going to complain to my editor. I had to, we, we required two brave people being humans in that moment. And look, I, I guess maybe we're not all capable of that, but I think if the workplace, if the culture fostered in the workplace is one of high expectations, we've employed you all because we think you're great human beings, we expect good things of you. If things go wrong and you get into trouble, come and let us know, we'll help you, but otherwise be your best selves and we'll help you through the bits where you're not, then I think that encourages the two people in that clash to get through that. Mm. And it's now, for me, about workplace culture. Yeah, it's really interesting. I would love to keep talking about this because it's <laughs> really interesting. I feel like we've barely – I've got pages of notes. Hit me, hit me with one more question before we – no, no, <laughs> What's I, the one I, that I you really like, want to ask? No, so uh, we've covered all a lot of the stuff that I thought was really fascinating. And Shania asked some great questions. I, I would just like to thank you for um, spending some time with us and – um, and for redoing this book, I think it's it's a great time to publish it. So um, thank you for joining us. Yep. I would 100% tell everyone that they should read this book because it's legitimately a gripping read. You know, yes. you, once you start reading it, and it's really easy, yep. a really easy read, read in a couple so, of hours. Yeah, so go and buy it. <laughs> you, can, you can buy it from Booktopia. And um, thanks, Virginia, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And um, it's really lovely to know that Booktopia has these. Great readers and really thoughtful people working there. I had no idea. I'm just so pleased to meet you. Oh, and that, <laughs> thank you. No, seriously, it's one of the loveliest conversations I've had about the book. So I'm so glad. And yes, look, I hope people do. I think it's, I think it's a particularly good book for any young women you might have in your life. I'd be really interested to hear what they thought of it, good or bad. But I know it'll be something that that sits exactly where they are right now, and some of the issues they might be grappling with in the workplace or at university or in their studies or when they're about to enter the workforce for the first time. It, it might prove to be a handy manual. I quite agree. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.